This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. CBS presents America Changed Forever with CBS News correspondent Jeff Pegues. So this week there was a primetime January 6th select committee hearing. Did you watch? Did you listen? I would like to begin by addressing the heinous attack yesterday. Yesterday is a hard word for me. But this election is now over. Congress has certified the results. I don't want to say the election's over. I just want to say Congress has certified the results. I just want to be clear by the the end of this hearing. President Trump did not fail to act during the 187 minutes between leaving the ellipse and telling the mob to go home. He chose not to act. Was the president in that private dining room the whole time that the attack on the Capitol was going on? Or did he ever go to, again, only to your knowledge, to the Oval Office, to the White House Situation Room, anywhere else? So that's my recollection. He was always in the dining room. When you were in the dining room in these discussions, was the, uh, was the, the violence of the Capitol visible on the screen? On the, in the- I think I was pretty clear there needed yes. to be an immediate and forceful response statement, public statement that people need to leave the Capitol now. Donald J. Trump, former president of the United States of America, did nothing except watch TV as thousands of people descended on the Capitol of the United States, on the Capitol building, defaced that building, busted through doors, busted through windows, roughed up, beat up, threatened to kill police officers, threatened to hang the vice president of the United States, Mike Pence. So according to the January 6th hearing in prime time, according to the committee hearing, the president at that time, Trump, Donald J. Trump, didn't do a thing. He was in the dining room right off the Oval Office. He could have picked up any number of phones, called people. He didn't do anything. And then when it came time to release a statement, a video statement, because his team, his advisors wanted him to get a statement out, calm these people down, get them to go home peacefully. He had trouble saying words. It was something. It was something. So here are the headlines after this hearing. From the New York Times, five takeaways from the eighth hearing of the January 6th committee. From Newsweek, Trump losing GOP support for 2024 run as January 6th hearings unfold. This is polling data from Reuters Ipsos, released on Thursday. 
shows that Trump is losing support among GOP voters for a 2024 presidential run. And that's what we've been seeing. You know, whether some voters think he's too old, too controversial. But this particular survey data was collected from July 20th to July 21st. It showed that about one-third, 32% of Republicans strongly or somewhat agreed with that statement that Trump should not run for president again in 2024. Now, that was an increase from about one quarter who said the same just six weeks ago. So that is interesting. That is interesting. But this might not be an issue because there is the other side of this coin that he could be in handcuffs, question mark, before he announces his run. I mean, we don't know what DOJ, the DOJ, and the Attorney General Merrick Garland are doing with this case. So I asked the Attorney General this past week. I just wanted to know because, you know, here he is, former federal judge. I think it's fair to say in terms of attorney generals, he's fairly, you know, he tries to go by the book. All right. he That's his reputation. He tries to go by the book. He's so by the book that sometimes in the media world doesn't make for good TV. Just being honest. But the other day when I asked him this question, I got a rise out of him. Mr. Attorney General, have you been weighing any constitutional concerns about potentially charging or indicting a former president for actions that president allegedly took during his administration? Hey, hey, look, no person is above the law in this country. Nothing stops us. No, I don't know how to maybe say that again. No person is above the law in this country. I can't say it any more clearly than that. There is nothing in the principles of prosecution in any other factors which prevent us from investigating anyone, anyone who is criminally responsible uh, for, for a, 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 an attempt to undo a democratic election. I wanted to pin him down because at some point he's going to have to decide yay or nay. Do you charge a former president? And the evidence, according to the January 6th committee, they've been trying to beat it into the public's head, that President Trump summoned the mob, he led the mob, he didn't do anything for 187 minutes. So they've been beating it into the public's head. So these hearings... Yeah, they've been entertaining. It's good information. And, you know, it is important that the American people know the truth. So the information's out there, but ultimately this is going to fall right smack dab in Merrick Garland's lap. It's all going to be on his shoulders. Okay, and he is a grown man, but he's going to have a lot of weight on his shoulders. A lot of weight. And he's going to have to make this decision because for him, it's a no win. And really for DOJ, it's a no win decision here because you're going to, if you charge former president Trump, oh man, oh man, talk, talk about turbulent 
talk about a turbulent news cycle. If you don't charge former President Trump, oh man, talk about a turbulent news cycle. All right, so we're going to talk about former President Trump. It always comes back to him, I got to say. It always comes back to him. I'm going to bring in our guest, Jonathan Weiner, who has worked for the State Department, previously worked as a Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for International Law Enforcement, but he is a man for many seasons because he is also working in this country for a group called Keep. Well, you know what, Jonathan? I'm going to let you talk about it. Jonathan Weiner, thanks for being with us. Sure. I'm working with a group called Keep Our Republic, which was founded by former uh, Majority Leader uh, Dick Gephardt, former Senator Gary Hart, and former Senator um, Tim Wirth, among others, and who are focused on three basic principles, which we think this country has always stood for and always should stand for, which is that everybody should be allowed to vote. And second, that those votes should um, all be counted. And finally, that that count should be respected and determine who gets to be elected president of the United States into every position for which people vote. Uh, people ought to be making the decisions about who represents them. You shouldn't be having politicians making those decisions for the people. Those are very basic principles, but they are under threat in the country today. In the Iowa Capitol Dispatch, newspaper. Kyra Lerner wrote, and this is the headline in this article, criminalizing the vote, GOP-led states enacted 102 new election penalties after 2020. And as you know, Jonathan, there was this Presidential Advisory Commission on Election Integrity. Didn't last long. But President Donald Trump and Vice President Mike Pence at the time in 2017, they made a big deal out of it because they were, and of course, the premise was they were looking for a fraud in the election is, uh, you know, I'm thinking back. But do you think that led Republicans, that advisory commission gave Republicans carte blanche across the country to champion new election penalties. What do you think? I think it was part of a strategy which Donald Trump engaged in when he thought he was going to lose against Hillary Clinton of saying the election's rigged. He said that many, many times. And then, of course, she beat him in the popular vote by millions of votes. So he then said all those millions of votes that were for her, uh, by which she beat me, those were all fake votes, fraudulent votes. So the purpose of the uh, commission was to lay a foundation for further attacks um, to on the voting system to make it harder for people to vote and to discredit results uh, that the MAGA faction of the Republican Party, the Donald Trump faction of the party, um, don't like. All you have to do is find me those extra missing votes, he told the Secretary of State in Georgia. Uh, there's a federal criminal investigation going on of what happened there. But the idea was is that if you don't like the results, uh, change the results until you like them. And so what's happening now is in Republican-controlled states, states like Alabama, Arizona, Arkansas, Florida, Georgia, 
go all the way down the alphabet through Pennsylvania on the way to Wyoming, uh, they're changing election laws, not just to make it harder to vote, which they are going to do and they are doing, but also to criminalize actions taken by everybody involved in an election, including voters, people who assist voters, and election officials for a variety of offenses, which in reality uh, are either not important, don't affect uh, the uh, fundamentals of voting, or uh, aren't taking place at all. And they're trying to create a situation where there's enough risk involved in voting or in being an election official uh, that some people won't do it. Is I, I'm looking through this list of election-related uh, laws that create these crimes. Uh, for example, uh, who is criminalized? A voter, in this case, prohibits anyone who is not blind from applying to receive an accessible ballot. That's a felony. That's a felony. Uh, Right. A third in North, and this is this is in Oklahoma and in North Dakota, uh, an election official uh, can be brought up on charges if the person prohibits the destruction at any time of ballots, ballot boxes, voter lists. <sighs> I'm looking at these, and I these are the kind of laws that, you know, they're going to affect GOP voters as well as uh, people who vote for the Democrats, don't you think? Well, it depends on how they're enforced. In Pennsylvania, for example, one of the things that they're trying to do in changing Pennsylvania law is to allow people from other parts of the state to come be observers at the voting in urban areas of the state, for example. So if you've got a uh, a black voting area in Philadelphia, you bring people in from some other state and some other race, and you have them doing observing, saying, no, I object to this one. No, this one's not right. No, that one's not right. No, this other one isn't right. And so if enforcement is focused on areas in which your opponents are voting, you're creating an invitation to a, a whole lot of trouble, not just voter suppression, but potentially conflict at the voting booth on critical periods. So you can imagine a situation like this, not only punishing people who are engaged in innocent behavior, but also in leading to really wholesale situations where people are not able to vote when they're trying to vote. It's very, very disturbing. And it's it's systematic, and it was presaged by this commission that Donald Trump created in May 2017, which, by the way, did not find evidence of significant voter fraud or any of the parade of horribles that Mr. Trump has constantly uh, pretended took place. Yeah, what I remember, that commission like disbanded after a matter of weeks. I mean, the, the criticism was so harsh that they just kind of gave up. What, what actually happened is some of the members quit, including the Republican members, quit. And then they didn't do very much for the next year, and then they disbanded. And there were, there were then uh, demands to look at their underlying material. And when people looked at the underlying material, they found that there was nothing there. They hadn't found anything. So what it was was a political exercise with the goal of discrediting voting and then uh, justifying efforts to make it harder to vote, which then can be enforced uh, in different ways. 
and uh, it's a very it's a very significant um, uh, uh, effort to suppress votes and to shape the results so that uh, the only people who win are the people um, uh, who represent those. Uh, let me say that again and differently. Uh, to cook the books, you know, one of the things about Donald Trump is when Donald Trump says something, it's very often projection about what his intention is. So when he said falsely the election was rigged, the one where he wound up beating Hillary Clinton, which he kept saying was rigged ahead of time, he's telegraphing what he himself would like to do or would do, which is to rig future elections, which is what he tried to do in 2020. And what uh, the MAGA wing of the uh, Republican Party has been doing in 2021 and 2022 with the goal of ensuring that they regain control and never, ever again lose it. And now we're hearing, according to CBS News reporting, that the former president, he could announce a 2024 run as early as this fall. Sure. It's intended to make it so that if he gets indicted, he'll be able to say, see that indictment? They're trying to, um, they're going after me because I'm running for president. Not because my behavior was criminal. It's all politics. That's what he's going to do. Yeah, I asked this past week, I asked the attorney general uh, with pre- former President Trump's timetable in mind, I asked the attorney general, Merrick Garland. So are, do you have a team here at DOJ and are you considering the constitutional ramifications of potentially charging or indicting a former president with acts allegedly committed during his term in office? And uh, Attorney General uh, Garland, who uh, <laughs> rarely shows emotion, you know, he, he's a judge at heart. Uh, and he, he rarely is forceful in his answers. And he, he said, let me say this again. <laughs> and I wasn't offended. I liked the fact that he was, he responded to the question, the way in which he did. He said, let me say this again. No one is above the law. And I said, not even a former president. No one is above the law is what he said. Now, whether whether the former president will be indicted or face charges, I don't know. I have my personal opinion, which I will keep to myself. But it is a weighty decision. And then if, as you say in CBS News is reporting, he announces, the former president announces that he's going to run for president and then he's in, that's a problem. That is a problem for this democracy because you're going to have this former president supporters saying, oh, this is DOJ being political all over again. Merrick Garland said that he, he wanted a department that was not going to get involved. In, well, here you go again. That's going to be a problem, Jonathan. You have to admit that will be a problem. Jeff, it's a problem, but you didn't say, I just want to find 11,780 votes to the Secretary of State in Georgia. You didn't, you didn't say that, and I didn't say that. Donald Trump said that. He did say that on, on tape. And that looks like 
uh, a corrupt effort uh, to change the vote count from losing to winning on the basis of uh, an abuse of his power and position as president of the United States when he was the candidate for re-election. We've never heard any other candidate for president say anything like that since the beginning of the republic. And this was caught on tape. There's no question about whether he said it or not, as near as I can tell. I just want to find 11,780 votes to, to Georgia's top election official. So there's no wonder. So there is no wonder that there is a federal prosecutor in Atlanta who's convened a grand jury about this and that the people are being told in connection with Georgia's elections, um, you're not just witnesses. Um, you're not uh, just people we're seeking information from. You may, be, you may be targets with criminal liability because there was a group of uh, fake electors who, was appoint, who were appointed or self-appointed in Georgia and uh, to cast their votes for Donald Trump after he, despite the fact that he lost. And the prosecutor is subpoenaing those people and putting them before the grand jury. And how far it's going to go, uh, it's hard to know, but we have heard that Rudy Giuliani, the, um, pr the uh, lawyer representing Mr. Trump at the time, is uh, part of that investigation has been subpoenaed, and a lot of the other people who are working with the Trump campaign. So it's a very serious investigation, that's clear. So the scenario that we just talked about, where Mr. Trump is actually indicted after he's announced that he's running for president, is a tragic and terrible one for the republic. But how much worse for the republic if we wound up having anyone be king again? The reason we became the United States was we didn't want to have anyone be above the law. No kings anymore. No one who gets to stay in office as long as they want just because they want to. Gets determined by voters who vote, having those votes counted equally and fairly, and having those counts respected. And all of that is under attack, as are the election workers. I mean, what they're doing is they're messing with our operating system, the operating system of our democracy. I did not bring you on this program to talk about former President Trump. We were talking about criminalizing the vote. And somehow, Jonathan, we end up talking about former President Trump. And I will say, and I have to say, and, you know, he has denied any wrongdoing, not in those words, but he, you know, uses truth social and he calls things a witch hunt. And, you know, he has called the January 6th committee something akin to a farce. There are no real Republicans on that panel defending me. But again, Jonathan, I did not bring you on here to talk about former President Trump. But here we are. But here we are because Merrick Garland has said no one is above the law. And right now, there is an extremely active federal grand jury in Georgia. Now, I don't know what the Department of Justice is going to do in connection with January 6th. Um, nobody knows. Um, what is clear is that there was an organized campaign to overturn the election. And that resulted in the insurrection. And we have Republican Liz Cheney, 
um, saying it, and Republican Adam Kinzinger saying it, not just uh, Democrats uh, on that uh, select committee. And it's it was an integrated effort. And for a very long time, key facts were suppressed, not visible, uh, showing the connections between the atrocities that happened on January 6th, 2021, and the organized effort to overturn the election that was involved that involved people in the White House, people in the uh, in the uh, Trump campaign uh, and people in his um, political party, including state officials and uh, some members of Congress. Now who's going to be held responsible for that in a criminal sense I can't uh, I can't know. It's not my job to know but these things are uh, these things are facts. This is what happened, and we know that there is a a grand jury in at least one state looking at one aspect of it, and the select committee will do an extensive report, documented by the thousand or more interviews, depositions they've um, undertaken, backed up by tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of documents, and there'll be a lot of information there for individual voters and Americans to review, and they can make up their own mind about what happened. Jonathan Weiner, thanks for your time. You're welcome. Pleasure. Jonathan Weiner, set this next segment up beautifully. We were talking at the end of our conversation about the January 6th committee, former President Trump's actions. And there is this part of the January 6th committee investigation as well. Those Secret Service text messages. Such a mystery. What happened to the text messages between the Secret Service agents? Why is this important? You might be asking yourself as I bring this up. Well, because you, you recall that Cassidy Hutchinson who worked closely with Mark Meadows, the chief of staff, and who was that fairly convincing witness during the January 6th hearing, who talked about how on January 6th, uh, there were these accounts of how the president lunged toward one of the agents clavicles, she said, tried to grab the wheel of the limo, which was an SUV that he was in. And so the January 6th committee, as well as investigators, they want to know what, you know, and if there were some conversations between Secret Service agents relevant to the January 6th investigation. Well, lo and behold, some of those text messages, all of those text messages, except for maybe one, is are unaccounted for. Let's talk about it with one of my colleagues here at CBS News who doesn't seem to find time to sleep. <laughs> I don't know how she does it. I, I really don't. I don't know how she does it. Nicole Skanga, one of my favorite people at CBS News. She was actually with me January 6th, which is a whole nother story. Maybe one of these days 
we'll talk about it because there was some drama before the drama and <laughs> just in covering the story, but we won't even talk about that today <laughs> and not to make light of it, but it was quite a day, not only on TV, but behind the scenes as well. So Nicole was there with me and she has been following the secret service saga. Okay. It is a saga because like every five minutes, there's a new development and what is the latest, Nicole? Yeah. So, Jeff, first of all, thanks for having me on. And I hope we get to do a different radio segment about what happened behind the scenes that day to answer your question. Coffee, uh, you know, is the answer of how I'm still awake right now. But here's the latest on this Secret Service saga. The Department of Homeland Security Inspector General sent a letter late last night to the U.S. Secret Service, basically instructing them to halt their own internal investigation into what happened to all of these apparently deleted text messages that were sent on January 6th, 2021 by Secret Service officials. And we should point out to your listeners that basically Secret Service says about this deletion, there was an agency-wide migration, a security migration to the cloud. Uh, They were trying to uh, upgrade their technology. And during that migration, all of the cell phones of U.S. Secret Service officials were factory reset, and those text messages were deleted unless they were proactively saved by individuals uh, who I guess were instructed in several emails uh, agency-wide emails to hang on to anything that could be deemed a government record. So that's sort of a long way of saying these text messages are gone unless Secret Service officials uh, had the wherewithal to hang on to them. And right now, the DHS Inspector General is telling Secret Service to stop trying to figure out you know, what happened to these messages and stop trying to get to the bottom of this. That happened in, uh, you know, a letter last night. And and prior to the inspector general's uh, request, officials within Secret Service were in the process of sorting through what's called metadata from the phones of two dozen Secret Service officials to determine if the agency failed to preserve any important text messages on January 6th that qualified as government records. So the DHS Inspector General and the January 6th committee had previously requested text messages sent and received by 24 U.S. Secret Service officials who were apparently a big deal on January 6th. They requested those text messages and only one relevant conversation was ultimately handed over to the inspector general and to the January 6th committee. And that was a conversation between former U.S. Capitol Police Chief Stephen Sund and former Secret Service Uniform Division Chief Thomas Sullivan. And in that conversation, U.S. Capitol Police Chief Stephen Sund at the time was requesting assistance from U.S. Secret Service. And so the committee and the DHS IG have that text conversation. But you ask, what about the 23 other officials who were on that sort of wish list from the DHS Office of Inspector General and the January 6th committee? Well, as they were sorting through this list, Secret Service determined as part of its own internal investigation that 10 of those officials never sent text messages on January 6th. And if you think that sounds weird, 
try to keep in mind that this is an agency, as you know, Jeff, that does a lot of communications over official lines, encrypted communications, and also radio transmissions, especially on a day like January 6th, where there was not a lot of service, as we know. Three other officials on that list were deemed to have sent only personal text messages, messages to their family members saying, hey, I'm still safe, I'm okay, uh, not government records. And then there was, of course, that one text message conversation that got handed over, which leaves 10 more U.S. Secret Service officials. That U.S. Secret Service was in the process of trying to determine did any of these 10 officials break the rules by not preserving those text message conversations of letting them get deleted during that migration? That's what Secret Service was trying to figure out until the inspector general sent their letter saying, stop, 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 stop everything. Your investigation might interfere with our investigation. So we're just going to hit pause here. But this presents a challenge for Secret Service now who feels like they need to comply also with a subpoena from the January 6th committee to follow through on handing over these messages. And also the National Archives, by the way, has a request into the Secret Service asking a similar thing, Jeff. All right. So we're going to take a pause here because this is a lot. This is a lot for people to digest. And I want to highlight some of the things that you are reporting. For example, this letter last week that you got your hands on or you saw and reported it out from the DHS IG uh, essentially telling Secret Service officials to stop their internal probe what is the significance of that? Yeah, it's a great question. And so that particular letter that was sent from the DHS Inspector General's office to Secret Service actually came Wednesday night of this week. And that letter said, stop your internal investigations. That letter also used some specific language insinuating, Jeff, that if there is, if there are suspicions of criminal wrongdoing, during this whole Secret Service saga, uh, that basically Secret Service be advised that they can't be talking to witnesses or interfering in any way by reaching out to their own officials throughout this process. And so we have to be a little bit careful about how we talk about this because, of course, the inspector general has the power here to refer charges to the U.S. attorney general if he suspects that there is potential criminal wrongdoing, but we're not there yet. We're sort of at this stage where we know that there is an ongoing probe by the DHS inspector general into Secret Service's response on January 6th. Uh, but this letter basically serves as a warning to Secret Service to say, please pause your own internal probe. Stop looking for these messages. Stop talking to your officials. Let us finish our work first. And the fact that this letter leaked out, again, it shows this, uh, this aspect of the January 6th committee investigation intensifying. You know, just the, the mystery behind these 
What are potentially missing texts? Do they exist? Was this a cover-up? You know, that's the kind of question. Those are the kinds of questions that you have people here in Washington wondering. Well, this is so bizarre. What happened to these text messages? Why can't they find them? I don't believe what they're saying. The Secret Service has said it will cooperate. Um, that's what they're saying publicly. But are they really cooperating? That That is the question some people here in Washington are trying to answer. What, what have you found in your personal dealings with Secret Service officials, Nicole? Do you, are they <laughs> exhausted by, uh, what are these allegations? Uh, allegations of a cover-up. Are they exhausted? Are they flabbergasted? <laughs> I can't believe I used that word. Yeah, I think a lot of folks, both inside and outside the organization, just officials at the Department of Homeland Security are fairly startled and surprised at what this looks like, frankly, at the sort of convenient disappearance of some of these messages. Now, I will say, based on my understanding, the U.S. Secret Service is trying to find a way to recover any records that were lost during this phone migration. The agency is attempting to retrieve the content of text messages sent on January 6th from phone service providers and manufacturers. Without digging ourselves too deeply into this hole, Jeff, that's a really, really hard thing to do. I spoke with a Verizon executive, for example, yesterday that told me, While metadata and cell site location data can be retrieved for up to a year, the content of customers' text messages, even if it's on the cell phones of Secret Service officials, those are erased after one week in keeping with company policy. And certainly Apple has a similar policy where company guidelines state that iMessage communications are end-to-end encrypted, so Apple has no way to decrypt that iMessage data when it's in transit between devices and it it can't intercept those communications. Uh, And certainly in the past, it has not handed over those types of communications without a court order. So Secret Service says they're trying. The question now, are they really trying or is there anything even that they can try at this point? Um, Beyond that, Jeff, I, I would say that This is problematic for the Secret Service that they now have to cope with this new request from the inspector general because, you know, keep in mind the directive here could interfere with the Secret Service's attempts to respond to the January 6th committee subpoena to respond to the National Archives request that the agency submit a report within 30 days explaining the circumstances around the seemingly missing text messages. So yes, uh, officials are exhausted, but more than anything, they're frustrated now because they feel as though their hands are tied amid all of these allegations and that they can no longer work to try to resolve what happened when. What is really interesting to me as we wrap this up, in addition to to what you've outlined about the Secret Service, is that earlier this month, Secret Service Director James Murray announced that he was going to retire. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Timing is everything. In fact, one of my former 
sources within the intelligence community years ago told me, Jeff, timing is everything. Timing is important. Things happen when they do for a reason. It really is interesting, the timing of his departure and whether he knew something was coming. I think that is exactly right. Obviously, timing is an important factor here. I think it also raises a a question regarding who will step up to the plate next, right? And so, you know, you have a few different names in the running as to who will take James Murray's place. Uh, But it's looking like anyone who is currently at the U.S. Secret Service might not be the best candidate. And so that raises this question of, you know, will someone from outside the agency come in? What will be the new direction of this organization? James Murray leaves in just a little over a week. I believe his last day is technically July 31st. Uh, And so... A, that means you've only got so long to get him on the record about what happened before he is out the door. He's going to Snapchat, the social media company. And B, you know, who is going to step in to sort of clean up this mess? And as we know, this is one of a very long list of controversies that the U.S. Secret Service has found themselves in uh, this year alone. And if you're outside of Washington, you're probably... And there are a lot of people across this country who aren't quite familiar with what the Secret Service is or what it does, but the Secret Service is tasked with protecting the president, the first family, right on down the line. This is an important job. And so right now, the Secret Service is under a tremendous amount of scrutiny, as you noted, not only for this incident and and this controversy, but there have been over others over the years, over the last decade, that have been really embarrassing episodes for the Secret Service. And it has tried to rehabilitate its image. And once again, it is getting a black eye. And part of what's involved here is the future of the Secret Service in that during President uh, Trump's term, a member of the Secret Service, Anthony Ornato, and of course, Nicole, you know this, he served as a political advisor to the president. You know, they had him, uh, I think it, it was as a deputy chief of staff, because the thinking was, hey, we need to be involved in travel decisions. We need to be up to speed with everything. Yada, yada, yada. So it'd be good, you know, good uh, policy if, if we had someone high up in the administration uh, who could coordinate communication between the agency and the White House. Well, now, and you can weigh in here now, it has raised all sorts of questions about whether the Secret Service was too close to President Donald Trump, whether he's viewed them as, as his personal bodyguards rather than Secret Service agents. So that, that's something else that will have to be worked out. Absolutely. And I think the big question now, Jeff, is does White House, I should say former White House Deputy Chief of Staff for Operations, Tony Ornato, appear before the January 6th committee in a public setting? 
you know, we've reported there have been discussions about that. We know that Tony Ornato has already appeared before the January 6th Select Committee, uh, that there is uh, testimony of his that has been taped. There's a question of whether or not the committee will, uh, you know, re-rack the footage on that and play some of it out in future hearings for sure. Uh, but certainly a lot of questions regarding his testimony in light of what Cassidy Hutchinson said during hers and of whether or not it should ever be the case again that a Secret Service official sort of crosses that line in between career and political to become a political appointee moving forward. Now, we should just note it has always been the case that U.S. Secret Service agents have uh, acted with discretion oftentimes, that they are meant to you know, protect the president and in doing so, uh, you know, uh, the way it's been described to me by former and current officials is, is that they operate discreetly. They make things go away sometimes. Uh, but certainly <laughs> in light of this controversy, that's an understatement. I think uh, <laughs> it's worth asking, you know, how much longer can things be meant, uh, you know, to disappear, particularly in this case? Maybe the text messages were a bridge too far. Yeah, it, you know, when you, when when people talk about discretion, for some reason, as a Seinfeld fan, I go back <laughs> to the vault. You keep it in the vault. It's in the vault. Not, I'm not making fun of this controversy. It's just that's what pops into my head, Nicole. <laughs> I'm sorry. Sorry for bringing that up, but I love it. I'm but, a Seinfeld fan too. Yeah, so let's keep this in the vault. Okay. Nicole Skanga, thank you. Good job. Thank you, Jeff. Appreciate it. If you're listening to this program right now, you're you're probably well, first of all, I hope you're indoors because it is hot, hot, hot across a great deal of this country. 275 million Americans uh, could see high temperatures above 90 degrees. Uh, so you're feeling the heat, literally feeling the heat. I mean, yeah, it's summer, but there's something different uh, about, you know, these kinds of temperatures. Let's talk about it. It, it. it has something to do with climate and, and the changes that we're seeing. Some people still don't want to acknowledge. I want to bring back Dr. Michael Mann, who is a distinguished professor of atmospheric science at Penn State, also the author of the book, the new book, The New Climate War. Dr. Mann, thanks for being with us. Uh, thank you, Jeff. It's great to be with you. All right. So let's talk about what's happening outside. It is oppressive. You know, when I was younger, I, I'd feel the heat more. Now I, I know how to cope with it. You make sure that you drink a lot of water. You make sure that you wear the right kind of clothing. But it's still hot. And, and does it have anything to do with climate change? You are a distinguished professor <laughs> of atmospheric science. I like that title <laughs> at Penn State. So you know what you're talking about. So, so tell me 
why we're seeing, I don't know, are these extreme temperatures? Yeah. Yeah. You know, so certainly, you know, it gets hot in the summer, but it has never gotten as hot as it's now getting in London, where they just recorded the hottest temperature that they've ever recorded of 104 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, beating the old record by several degrees. Here in the United States, we have set the record temperature for the planet uh, two consecutive summers, last summer and the summer before. Uh, each summer, we broke the previous record, which had been set in Death Valley, California. And this summer isn't over. There's a good chance that we will break that record, 136 degrees uh, this, this summer as well. And so, yes, summer is hot, but it hasn't been this hot. And we have seen a dramatic increase in the frequency and intensity of heat waves here in the United States, in Canada, North America, uh, remember the heat dome last summer where they were recording temperatures up in southwestern Canada hotter than what you'd normally expect in Phoenix, Arizona in midsummer. We're seeing triple digits uh, this summer over a large cross section of the country. And when you add in the humidity, um, we are going to see dangerous heat indices along the east coast of the U.S., parts of uh, the central U.S. in the days to come. And this would not be happening in the absence of the warming of the planet. We can now say that decisively. We have tools uh, that allow us to do, you know, there's a fancy term for it, uh, detection and attribution. Basically, we can look at an event and look at a counterfactual world where we hadn't warmed up the planet with carbon pollution and the actual world where we did and compare how often that event happens in those two cases. And when it basically never happens in the counterfactual, and it does happen in the case where we account for the human impact, we can conclude that this event wouldn't have happened in the absence of human-caused warming. That was true for the heat dome uh, in the Pacific Northwest last summer. Uh, it's true for the record heat they're seeing in Europe right now. Uh, this is climate change. There's no question about it. All right, Dr. Mann, if we were living in an environment where there, there wasn't a segment of the population that doesn't believe in science, because yeah. you, you talk about we have tools and you know it definitively, well, why should they believe what you're saying? Yeah, well, unfortunately, we do live in a fraught age where... You know, people feel empowered. <laughs> they, 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 they feel entitled to reject the findings of science when it somehow proves inconvenient to their political or ideological beliefs. And, and we see, we've seen that to deadly effect with COVID-19. And we see that with the even deadlier crisis of climate change, because more human lives will be lost if we fail to address the climate crisis by far than have been lost due to the pandemic. Um, so, you know, the basic response to those who don't, you know, accept the science, um, science is true, you know, the findings of science are true, whether or not you believe them. And those who fail to pay attention are the ones who are going to suffer in the end as we endure worse climate change impacts. And as those countries, those nations that get on board, that undergo a, a transition towards a clean energy economy, they're going to prosper and, and, and the rest of us will get left behind. And so 
it's, you know, to those who still deny the overwhelming science, uh, I would point out that, look, uh, no less than our, you know, the Pentagon and our, you know, the leaders in the national security community and the CEOs of our largest corporations, um, they are all on board. They recognize that this is the greatest threat that we face as a civilization. And the sooner we do something meaningful about it, uh, the better off we'll be. We have a tendency in this country to kick problems down the road. I mean, we saw it with the pandemic. You know, I, I mean, I didn't expect there to be a pandemic in my lifetime. You know, and I think a lot of people uh, in government started de-emphasizing funding of, of research that would uh, help during a pandemic, uh, started cutting, you know, when, when they needed some budget to cut, that was the one that we, they went after, I think, what, a year before the pandemic or so. Great timing. What you outline here with climate change, I have a feeling it's going to be the same way, where something is going to happen. It's going to be major. Sadly, people are going to lose their lives. And you're going to have people in government who, who will say at that time, well, we saw this happening and we tried to do something, but nobody was listening. And, you know, they started defunding this and defunding that. I have a feeling climate change is going to be the same because, you know, people like you, distinguished professors and others, have been saying and sounding the alarm for years. And yet there are still too many climate deniers out there and in positions of influence. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, there's a saying that, you know, every disaster film begins with someone ignoring the scientists. And, you know, that we saw that, um, you know, play out in, you know, in, to deadly effect uh, with the COVID-19 crisis. And again, we're seeing that play out here. It isn't a matter of when. We have seen those devastating climate-driven catastrophes already. If you're Puerto Rico uh, and, you know, that, that suffered the devastation from Hurricane Maria some years ago or the Jersey Coast, uh, you know, with um, Superstorm Sandy, uh, if you're Texas right now um, that is experiencing deadly heat uh, and lost much of their cattle, um, Oklahoma and Texas in the 2010 uh, heat wave and drought. Uh, if you're, you know, the folks in Europe um, in the 2003 European heat wave, 30,000 people lost their lives. There are events that we can point to now and say would not have happened. They wouldn't have been as extreme in the absence of human caused warming. That led to massive loss of life. And in fact, if you look at the projections, as I said before, Climate change is going to be far more deadly than any other crisis we've, fail, uh, we've faced if we fail to act. And so, yes, there will always be deniers who will go down with the denialist ship. You know, they're still, um, you know, there was <laughs> not too many years ago, uh, they found a Japanese soldier who was still fighting World War II. <laughs> you know, there, there's the equivalent in the climate arena, people who will go down with as I said, the denialist ship, but we will move on collectively. And I think that that's happening. 
we've seen some substantial progress, uh, not enough progress, but in, uh, in Glasgow, COP26 meeting last uh, year, we saw commitments from the you know, countries of the world that if honored, and that's a big if, if those commitments are honored, have the potential to keep warming below two degrees Celsius, uh, less than about three and a half degrees Fahrenheit. That's still too much, but it's a whole lot better than what we were looking at back before the Paris uh, summit in 2000 and, uh, uh, 2000, uh, the, the, the Paris summit, uh, 2015, 16, uh, where we were looking at maybe as much as four degrees Celsius warming, uh, nearly eight degree Fahrenheit warming. So we've made progress. Carbon emissions have flattened. That's the good news. The bad news is flattening those emissions isn't good enough. If they're flat, we're still putting carbon pollution into the atmosphere. We've got to bring that carbon pollution down to zero. We've got to do it quickly. We've got to bring those emissions down by 50% within the next decade to avert a truly catastrophic one and a half degrees Celsius, three degree Fahrenheit warming of the planet. Speaking of warming of the planet, in my meticulous research for this program, I'm looking at this heat map yeah. of the country, and I mean, it's a beautiful graphic. <laughs> you know, anybody in TV, we love graphics. Oh, yeah. And there's a lot of red and oranges, and I love these colors. Well, they got to come up with new colors now <laughs> in some of these maps. Yeah, I guess you could. Well, you can't use red and blue because we know those are the political colors. But this <laughs> orange and dark orange, it shows large swaths of the South, including parts of eastern Texas, Louisiana, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Mississippi, and Alabama, and the central East Coast from South Carolina, New Jersey. We'll see some of the most pronounced danger, which is in the dark orange, from the heat. Okay. I mean, this is serious. This heat is serious. Yeah, this is this is deadly heat. We're seeing over a large swath of the country right now heat that is downright dangerous. And and this is one of the predictions uh, that we saw years ago that eventually, if we continue to burn carbon, put CO two into the atmosphere, fossil fuel burning, uh, we will start to see large parts of the world that are essentially unlivable, where it's too hot for, for human habitation. And here's the problem. Either that heat comes with humidity, and then you get really dangerous heat indices that are, you know, that lead to loss of life. Um, or you get dry heat. And when you get that dry heat, um, then you have the conditions for the massive wildfires and forest fires we've seen out west. Uh, so it's sort of damned if you do, damned if you don't. Um, whether it's dry heat or it's humid heat, uh, it comes with real threats to us, to human life, uh, as well as obviously our environment. And so that is what we're seeing now. We don't have to use our imagination now to, um, to envision the impacts of human-caused climate change. Uh, we're seeing it play out in real time here. President Biden, before he got COVID. Um, and perhaps he, I mean, we don't know. And, and the good thing is, as of this uh, program's recording, he was said to have, you know, mild symptoms, but he, he may have picked it up. 
when he was out announcing his plan to combat climate change. Um, And he's announced a set of new actions to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. What else did he announce, Dr. Mann? And do you think it's enough? Yeah, so it's it's a great question. Uh, You know, the... The Biden administration, Joe Biden and his administration have pretty much, you know, made use of all the tools that are available to them from the standpoint of executive actions, the authority of the president, the chief executive. So there are an array of tools and, um, you know, uh, for example, um, the the president uh, can um, issue you know, executive actions that require governmental uh, departments um, and institutions to move towards renewable energy. Um, uh, the president can block uh, the development of additional fossil fuel infrastructure on public lands. Um, and, and so these are things that, you know, the Biden administration has tried to do. And with they've been opposed but now by the sort of conservative uh, members of the court the supreme court the republican majority on the supreme court has now uh, tried to block what this administration is 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 attempting to do uh, via executive actions and that's probably likely to continue to be true what that means is that as much as you know the biden administration might try to implement climate policy uh, through executive actions there's a real limitation there we need legislation. We need Congress to pass climate legislation that will allow us, allow the United States to make good on its promise to the rest of the world to lower our carbon emissions by 50% within the next decade. We have committed to that. And so what, in a sense, the most important thing that the president can do at this point is to use the bully pulpit to make sure that the citizens of this country understand that we can't solve this problem without congressional action and that we need people to turn out in these midterm elections and elect politicians who will be willing to act on our behalf, on behalf of us and the planet, rather than politicians who will just be a rubber stamp for polluters. And so to me, the most important thing that the president can do is to emphasize to the public that it is critical that they turn out in this next election and elect politicians who will work with the executive branch, who work with the president to advance the cause of climate action. Despite the urgency that you're discussing in in this conversation. The president stopped short of declaring this a, a climate emergency. Do you, do you think he's been criticized? Are you going to criticize him for stopping short? Should he should he have gone further? Yeah, so, you know, he he declared a climate emergency without declaring a climate emergency in a sense. He framed this as an emergency in his commentary yesterday, but he didn't declare an official climate emergency. Um, And, you know, that is within the bounds of his authority. It potentially leads us down a slippery slope uh, because if this president were to, in a sense, circumvent Congress um, in, in trying to, you know, declare an emergency as a way to garner funding for a particular project, in this case, um, uh, climate action, 
there's the danger that this sets a precedent that could be abused by, you know, a future Republican president. We saw an attempt to do that under uh, Donald Trump to uh, to abuse the notion of an emergency, a fake emergency, a fake crisis to uh, build this wall that he wanted to build on our southern border. So I think there is a sensitivity on the part of the Biden administration to the dangers, to the peril of going down that route. Now, that may be the last sort of arrow in the quiver if we fail to get a legislative solution here. And so what I think the Biden administration is looking at right now, they're looking at a a change sort of in the feel of the electorate right now, where it's looking more favorable uh, for Democrats to uh, possibly gain seats in the Senate and keep the House of Representatives. And if they're able to do that, then they can pass climate legislation. Right now, that legislation is held up because they need all 50 Democratic votes, and one of them, Joe Manchin, refuses to caucus with his fellow Democrats. Uh, With a gain of a couple Democratic seats in the Senate, they would be in a position to pass climate legislation through reconciliation. So my guess is that the Biden administration is looking at that. It's looking at this fall. It wants to see what happens in the uh, fall midterm elections. And at that point, it'll be in a better position to assess what the next steps are that we need to take to address this crisis. Dr. Michael Mann, distinguished professor of atmospheric science at Penn State, the author of the book, The New Climate War. Always nice having these discussions with you. Thanks for coming on, ACF. Oh, thank you, Jeff. It was a pleasure talking with you. That is America Change Forever for this week. Thanks to Paul Woody Woodhull in District Productive. Check your local listings to see when ACF airs in your community. For now, I'm Jeff Begays, and that is how America Change Forever. That is America Change Forever for this week. Thanks to Paul Woody Woodhull in District Productive. You can hear ACF on Sirius XM POTUS Channel 124 every Saturday. Don't forget, for now, I'm Jeff Begays, and that is how America changed forever. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings early and ad-free on the 48 Hours Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts.